Beautiful. Dr. Kasuri, welcome to Max Depth. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good. It's good to see you. And uh, hi to all the listeners, viewers, I guess. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm absolutely fascinated by your work. So maybe you could start with an introduction of who you are, the field you're in, interesting work uh, you're working on right now. And I know you have some slides that we got. Anything, anything that you think is best, please. Yeah, okay. So, so fair disclaimer, I, I did not prepare slides for this, but I do have some slides that I think could help just tell the story. So I, I'm going to split it into two parts. I'll give you a quick introduction of who I am, where I come from, how I got into what I'm doing, and then maybe I can share a little bit about the work uh, and the more technical part of what we're doing and also kind of my vision of where the field is headed in the future. Does that make sense? Beautiful. Beautiful. Cool. Okay. So I'll uh, go ahead and, and share here. Um, are you seeing full screen version? I see everything. Yeah. Just how it was before. Is this better? There it is. Yep. Just like okay. that. Just full screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, cool. This is where I was born. I, um, I, my dad is Indian. My mom is Swedish. I was born and grew up in Sweden, in Stockholm, up here, uh, latitude fifty-three. <laughs> so this is about the same uh, latitude as southern Alaska, if you if you compare. But um, yeah, so that's where I grew up. I went to school. I was always really interested in. And I see sounds similar to you, like uh, just interested in everything, like everything from, from physics to biology, to finance, to whatever, geology and uh, psychology and you name it. Right. And so I never knew what I wanted to be. I didn't know if I had to be something. And so I just kind of studied as much as I can, could in all subjects. Ultimately, I, I was like gravitated towards physics just because I think part of it was just laziness that in physics, you didn't have to memorize so much. You could just like rely on logic and, and actually um, uh, answer a bunch of questions based on like one equation. Um, whereas in biology, for instance, you had to memorize a bunch of concepts and words and names and acronyms, and, and that took a lot of effort. So my natural laziness drove me towards physics, but I, I was always fascinated with all of these topics. And so um, this is what Stockholm looks like, by the way. It's beautiful. Go there if you can. Um, uh, after uh, spending some years um, you know, doing research in physics, uh, I actually realized that um, um, maybe physics wasn't a career that I would enjoy as much. Uh, and the reason for that was that, actually, let me let me just, I, I have, um, I think I have better, I have better slides. One second. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, here we go. I'll just share this one. Okay, so same place but and there was one component missing in the last one so before i moved to new york um i actually went to this place called cern in switzerland cern is a um, particle accelerator um, and so i did particle physics for my master's thesis after college um here's a person next to the accelerator i don't know if you can see on the on the screen yeah so these are like these are the largest machines that humans have ever built they um uh, they they accelerate and smash fundamental subatomic particles into one another. You can measure what comes out of there, and um, ultimately, uh, you know, we're trying to discover what everything is made of. It's really fundamental physics. It's really like trying to figure out what the universe consists of and what you know what's at the at the bottom of everything. And it was so inspiring. And I I remember thinking like, oh yeah, if I could do this, uh, you know, I would. But I realized that as a graduate student, you didn't really have much agency in how these experiments were designed. You can imagine that like a multi-billion dollar project is not something they let a graduate student run. But what, what happens is that there are these large collaborations and coalitions between many countries where they decide how to, to design like huge experiments and, and do these, these tests that then lead to you know massive advancements of our understanding of nature, but it's as a graduate student, especially as a PhD student, you'd be like this tiny, tiny little component in a really big machine. And what I loved about physics was the, 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 the idea that you can like discover new fundamental properties of, of the universe. And um, I felt like when I read about physicists like Einstein or, you know, um, Bose and, and, um, and Niels Bohr and, and, you know, these like giants of the early 1900s, um, 
they did a lot of experiments either in their head or just like on a bench top and and they didn't really um build these giant machines right so i was like well i kind of like this idea that as a scientist you can actually discover new um new knowledge but i didn't like this uh, this dilution of 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 um uh, of agency that you get in these large projects so i moved to new york to do a phd in biophysics where i kind of saw the same kind of um, advancements happening in biology that used to happen in physics like 100 years ago so nowadays in biology you can make the same kind of fundamental discoveries um, uh, in a small lab as you could in physics like 100 years ago so i went to grad school at columbia in new york and i loved it and i um i i um, realized that as a physicist i i had a lot of the skills that were needed to to study like the fundamental concepts of biology like what molecules do when no one's looking for instance and so after my phd i moved up to cambridge and i did a postdoctoral fellowship at harvard um, where i essentially developed a new method to study single molecules and that's kind of what we're doing in my lab today um, I started my own lab here at uh, the Salk Institute, which is uh, in La Jolla, in California, and this is where we're. This is where my office is right now. You can see the ocean in the distance, <laughs> and um, yeah, this is the Pacific. And right here, we're what we're doing is we're essentially um, developing new tools to study how molecules move, how they interact, and trying to build the devices from the bottom up by controlling single molecules. And the technology that we rely on really heavily is called DNA origami. And the DNA origami is essentially uh, a way of like repurposing uh, DNA to become a structural uh, tool as opposed to just an information carrier, which it used to be. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, so that's that was my journey. That's how I came here. Now I people ask me what I am. I don't know. I like physics, I like biology, I like the mix of the two. I just uh, enjoy discovering new things and inventing new tools that can be useful for our lab to understand more and for the world at large. So that's, that's the goal. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it seems like I've listened to a bunch of podcasts and it seems like a place where a lot of different sciences are coming together and maybe even more so in the future, um, a lot of just very interdisciplinary so it makes sense why you're there with so many different interests. Yeah, and I think that we're actually, I mean, I, I don't think this idea that that there's like physics and biology and chemistry, like it's getting a little bit outdated. I mean, I know universities are still structured that way. You have majors, you have courses, you have, you know, departments and you have people who identify as these like different, you know, uh, concepts. But um, more and more what we're seeing is that a lot of the cutting edge uh, research that's being done is being done at the interface between these fields, these traditional fields, or just as a mesh of like many, many different technologies and expertises. And so um, I, I don't think it makes that much sense to think of like biology, physics and chemistry as separate entities anymore. I mean, there are skills that people learned in the, those different fields, but ultimately science is science and we're just trying to learn about the world. So that's kind of what brings us all together. I've always thought that the, the, the silos were somewhat limiting and maybe even destructive. Uh, they're absolutely destructive. I think they're, they um, they help people like organization and mm -hmm. uh, especially institutions like uh, structure because you can, you know, for financial purposes, like it, it makes sense. You know, you can put some money here, put some money here mm -hmm. and you can divide it and so forth. It makes sense from a, a strategic point of view, but it doesn't make sense. As a scientist, I think it's very limiting to think of yourself as a certain kind of person or as doing a certain kind of research. You kind of have to, see where you can have the biggest impact and where you, where you feel like the, um, where it's most interesting ultimately, and then go go in that direction and use whatever is available to, to at your disposal, right? Because you're you're essentially, I mean, as a scientist you're, or a philosopher, whatever you are, as a human being, you're trying to understand the same underlying substrate if you're looking at reality. Like yeah, all exactly. the, it's just different angles approaching the same thing. And, totally. and you would uh, think that uh, uh, a solution that utilizes as many angles or perspectives as possible would be the most correct one. Right. Let's say that you discovered like a new substance, right? Like this, here's a blob, like figure out what it is. You wouldn't just like look at it and try to determine what it is. You would use as many, many ways of analyzing as you could, right? You have a bunch of senses. You can, you can like 
hear what it sounds like. Maybe if you touch it, it makes a squishing sound like that could tell you something. If you touch it, you're also like interacting with it physically and your sense of touch can tell you something about the texture that could tell you something, right? If it smells, maybe it smells like acetone. Okay, well, there you go. It's a, you know, contains that compound and you can, <laughs> don't taste it, <laughs> but, but you know, like all of these different ways yeah. of analyzing what you have in front of you will give you more information about it. And the same thing comes to uh, what we're studying. We're studying DNA origami, right? We're studying like, how biomolecules work, how they're structured and what their mechanics are. And ultimately it'll help us understand the body better. It'll help us understand, you know, living things better. But in addition to that, we, what we're trying to develop in the lab is like using a lot of these biomolecules that have been uh, sort of part of life forever for many billions of years, but we're trying to repurpose them to become useful tools as structural materials that we can potentially build things out of in future devices, tests, uh, even, even like scaffolds for artificial organs or tissues, um, and maybe even as energy generators or turbines, or, you know, there are all sorts of applications that can come out of it. If you think outside of the box and if you, if you, if you, if you look at the same thing with new perspectives, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So sure. maybe I can give you an introduction to, do you, do you want to hear a little yes. bit about the organic? Yeah. Yes. Cool. yes, yes, okay. so, <laughs> yes. That was, I'll take that as a yes then. <laughs> <Yeah>. No, uh, stop. <laughs> okay, so it all starts with um, here. Okay, do you see presenter view or full screen? I see presenter view. All right, let me swap. How about now? Now I see full screen. Good, all right. All right, DNA, you've heard of it. Yes. What is it? Uh, 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 you go. <laughs> you familiar? It's like a spiral. Is mm -hmm. that? Yeah, made sense? of different different uh, nucleic acid base pairs. There's four of them. They each G goes with C, T goes with A. Um, they kind of all link together. I know there's a something like a, this is bringing me back to AP Bio, and I don't. I'm, I I got it through on the AP. Oh, you're good. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So. Um, right. So if you look inside your cells, um, their, their chromosomes, uh, this is actually misleading because most of the time chromosomes do not look like this. this is a, they look like this when cells are dividing, but not when the cells are actually like doing stuff with the DNA. Uh, anyway, that's a sidetrack. Um, it does have chromosomes. Chromosomes are just, each chromosome in the cell is just a bunch of DNA. Uh, and so if you look at the structure of DNA at the very, um, at, the, at the very like, basic um, molecular level, um, DNA consists of nucleotides. And those are the ones you're talking about, ATCG or guanine, cytosine, adenine, and thymine. And um, those four bases, they go together. So like G goes with C, A goes with T, and they can attract and bind to one another. And in your cells, it's pretty much always like that. So you will have your DNA with like one sequence of letters, and it will be paired up with a uh, the opposite or complementary sequence of letters. And, and when those two strands, we call them, of DNA come together, they form this double helix, this spiral shape that you probably know very well. So in the here you I, see like, I read people. that the, those base pair matches are temperature dependent. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you mean, like, I guess what you mean is if you increase the temperature, they come apart. Okay. Yeah, that's, that is true. Yeah, so. That's an interesting property. Yeah, that's part of the reason why you shouldn't boil yourself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a okay. Things, a lot of things come apart when you when you heat things up, uh, and and DNA is one of them. That's absolutely. This is an interesting property that we that we look at a lot actually, because we're we're trying to build things out of DNA, and and um, they all have some sort of um, limited temperature at which they keep their structure. If you increase the temperature beyond there, they start to come apart. Um, usually for for DNA, it's um, somewhere between room temperature and boiling. And depending, as you said, on the sequence, depending, so like G and C stick together uh, stronger than A and T. So mm -hmm. if you start increasing the temperature, the A and T start becoming apart first, and then the G and C come, come apart. And then it's all just like a mess. Ah, so um, at, so maybe, so at room temperature, um, are C and G and A and T equal in strength, but as it moves to, uh, as the temperature increases, is that when they show their, Different strengths. Uh, they're strength always levels? different in strength. So A and T are always um, held together less strongly than G and C, but okay. it doesn't make any practical difference because it's all you know 
it's strong enough to hold it together, right? Okay. So unless you're actively trying to pry apart the DNA, which sometimes yeah, happens. Sure. Like, I don't know, there are all sorts of uh, biological processes that require peeling apart the DNA. For instance, if you want to read the sequence, you have to peel it apart. Or if you want to copy the sequence and make more cells uh, and therefore more DNA, you also have to peel it apart. So peeling it apart entails actually ripping those bonds apart. And that's easier for A and T than it is for C and G. That doesn't make any practical difference from what we know, but it might. If you, if it might give you some nuance, like it might be that some sequences of DNA are harder to like read for your body because they are held together more closely. And so when these enzymes, these machines that read the DNA, when they start to like try to peel apart the DNA strands to read the sequence, then um, they might run into more trouble when there's a lot of G's and C's. That is actually something we are looking into, um, but it's it's that's like at the edge of our knowledge right now. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, basic point I want to make here is that at the very base of it, DNA is this like spiral-shaped uh, molecule that contains what we think of as letters. Each letter is a different nucleotide or different um, chemical group, uh, chemical molecule, if you will, and that uh, each one of these little uh, letters. Uh, can contain some information about like how to build a cell, how to build an animal organism or you. And so every time um, you make a new cell, uh, that new cell will have the same, ideally, the same DNA as the one that made it. <laughs> so, so as your body grows, it create more cells, all of those cells contain the same DNA, but that DNA contains all the information needed to make more cells and to make, to build the structure of your body. And so for billions of years, these have been the rules governing DNA. Like basically you've had this molecule in your body, A goes with T, G goes with C. Uh, and as we talked about, like it can unzip and, and rezip depending on, for instance, temperature. Um, yeah. And um, the way DNA is used inside of cells is that it basically contains the instructions to, um, to make proteins. Proteins are different kinds of molecules that do things in your body. There are the proteins there are they're proteins that generate force to contract your muscles. So when you move your arm like this, there are a bunch of proteins in here that just like pull on like little strings basically. And then as they pull on those strings, it shortens the muscle. And then that shortening um, pulls your arm, right? And that's the same thing in your heart. You have a bunch of little a web of strings essentially. And then a bunch of proteins that walk on those strings and that contracts your heart every time it beats. Um, but proteins do a lot of other things too. They can either they can like they can move electric uh, charges across membranes of cells, so they can charge or discharge cells, and that's what allows your your uh, nerve cells to signal to one another. It's basically just um, flows of current and electricity that is mediated with proteins, like proteins that are moving charges. And there are other proteins that that like break down your food, and there are proteins that take the broken down food and build it into new proteins. <laughs> and then there are all sorts of other um, proteins. So proteins are like the really the workhorses of our bodies. Like they're the molecules that do everything. And proteins that, proteins also, um, uh, there are also proteins that don't do anything, but they're just like structural components. So uh, one, one such protein is collagen. So collagen is what creates like, cartilage, like your earlobe or your nose, for instance, that's all, um, that's all protein, but it's proteins that are just structural. Um, your hair too, and your nails, that's keratin, that's another protein. It's also structural, it doesn't really do anything, it's just like provides some, some, some structure, right? Um, so um, the proteins that are structural, um, we just call them proteins, the proteins that do things like generate force or move things around or break down food or build up things, those are called enzymes. They're called enzymes because they create some reaction and they mediate some chemical process. And so, uh, so yeah, so we have enzymes and structural proteins. Anyway, point of this is the, the recipe for how to make all these proteins is contained in your DNA. And so DNA stores this information. And then, uh, yeah, the way it's read by your body is it's converted into RNA and then to proteins by by proteins, but but um, uh, but yeah. At the is very this base, a good time to ask about non-coding DNA or no? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So DNA um, for the longest time, people were like, "Oh, this is all that DNA does. It's just instructions for how to make proteins." And you can actually read it. Like you can read the code of DNA and be like, "Oh, yeah, here should be this proteins are built of amino acids." 
like, like here should be this amino acid, this amino acid, this amino. So you can just like read the DNA and they can tell exactly what the protein that it corresponds to should look like. And those parts of DNA that contain that information, they're called genes. So a gene is a piece of DNA that tells you the instructions to make a certain protein. Okay. Um, and then people were like, oh, we solved it, you know, in the 50s. They were like, okay, we got it. This is this is this is all there is. Like we figured out life. And then, and then they were like looking for these genes, right? And it turns out that the genes are only a small, small percentage of all of the DNA. Like most of the DNA did not have instructions for how to make proteins. And if we try to make proteins out of those parts, like it didn't really make anything useful. And we also could see that there was nothing in the body that was being like made from those instructions in that part of the DNA. And so for the longest time, people thought this was like junk DNA, but junk DNA was like a very strong term to give something that you don't understand. So <laughs> turns out that that was completely wrong. There's a lot of function in that DNA that doesn't tell you how to make proteins. It just doesn't make proteins. It, do it does other things. And so we're trying to figure out what it does, but it, we know it does a lot of different things. For instance, you have different cells in your body. You have muscle cells, you have brain cells, you have liver cells, you have, you have skin cells, right? These cells do very different things, but they all have the same DNA. So how does that work? Yeah, so it works because um, these cells have different identities, like they identify as different um, kinds of cells. And that was decided at some point, like early in your development. And once those cells decided what to be, uh, which is a whole field of science in its own right, but once they decide what to be. Question, sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. Is that uh, the morpho morphogenetic code? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, because I'm super interested in that as well. I don't know if we can touch okay, on that, but cool. keep going, keep going, sorry. Yeah, well, basically um, the rest of the DNA that doesn't tell you exactly how to make proteins, it tells you which cells should make which proteins and how much of which proteins. And also if something happens, like if you get too hot, for instance, then the cells have to respond in certain ways and the instructions for how to respond, meaning how to change which proteins to make and how fast to make the proteins and where to make the proteins and when to make the proteins, all of those instructions are carried in the non-coding part of DNA. And turns out that's like 90 some percent of the DNA. It's just instructions for where and when to make proteins. And then this little percentage is like how to make the proteins. That's the small part, but it all comes down to proteins in any case. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but that's, that's what we know. This is sort of like, this is basic biology. Like this is what people have been working on for a very long time. Actually, one of the founders of the Salk Institute where I work is Francis Crick, who discovered the structure of DNA and also discovered how this information is contained to some degree. Um, yeah, we have like lab meetings in his, in his former office, which he passed away, unfortunately, but, but, but his legacy lives on. All right, um, why is DNA good for information storage? Well, it's passes like really neat code, like a four bases. It's like a neat way to store information. It's very resilient because it's like wrapped up in this double helix. And so all of the actual readable code is like on the inside of the helix. And so um, it's like kind of protected. And, and one way to think about this is like, are you familiar with mammoths? Mammoths, the animal? Yeah, mammoths, the woolly mammoths. Okay, yes. Yeah, so they we were able to resurrect them because their because their <laughs> DNA was stored inside of the helix. Exactly. So some of the people I worked with at Harvard, they're now trying to make mammoths. Oh, and the amazing. reason why they can do that is because um, uh, they found a bunch of mammoths that have been like frozen in in the tundra in in Russia, mm -hmm. and when they thawed the mammoths, like the DNA was still largely intact. So for like tens of thousands of years, uh, these DNA molecules have retained the code, like it doesn't break down on its own, which is really useful, right? So that's why DNA is such a good material for information storage. Or okay, uh, a question I, sorry, uh, the, a question I had about the first bullet point, ATCG. Um, you, you said that having four letters is neat. Is having four letters limiting? Uh, yeah. I mean, it is, um, it's like, if you think about bases, so uh, are you familiar with binary code? Like computers? Yes. Yeah, so all the information in your computer is stored as ones and zeros. They're just like bits that can be positive or negative or like ones or zero essentially. And so if you want to write a letter, like let's say, okay, ASCII is one way of encoding this. So like the alphabet has, you know, 20 something letters. 
and then you have like punctuation marks and things. So somebody came up with the idea that like, okay, we have like 256 characters that we might want to be able to encode, like all this, the, the A, to, A through Z, and then like capital A through Z, and then the numbers one through like zero through nine, and then, you know, apostrophes and whatever you find on your keyboard, right? It's like 256 characters more or less with, with some extra ones. Uh, and so they were like, okay, but for the, to encode uh, 256 uh, different letters, like it's not sufficient to have a bit for each one because it can only be zero one, right? So if you want to write an A, like how do you tell the computer that you want to write an A? Well, you need to have like some sequence of bits and then that sequence of bits will tell you if it's uh, what, what letter it is. And so in order to encode for 256 different characters, you need eight bits. So one character contains as much information as eight bits, right? So it's not, you can say that bits having ones and zeros is limiting, but you can also say that it's flexible. Like you can encode whatever, it just takes a longer word, you know? And so that's the same thing with DNA. Like, yeah, ATCG, you, in each location of DNA, you can just have one out of four options, but you can have like lots of those next to one another and encode for any, right? So it just, if we had more bases, we would have shorter DNA, but now we have four bases. Now we have about 4 billion, um, Bases in our DNA, like that's the that's the length of of the information that is used to make you, for instance. It takes about four billion of these uh, um, letters. And you have to wonder why DNA would select for four bases. I'm uh, <laughs> sorry, evolution. Do you do you have to wonder? I don't think you have to wonder. I think you don't I think, have to. Uh, <laughs> I think that's optional. <laughs> oh no, I, you you do have to. I'll tell you, you have to wonder. Okay, you have to wonder. You have um, to wonder. I, I, I think, so I actually uh, used to, my, my colleague, one of my neighbors at Harvard is, is his name is Jack Shostak. And Jack, Jack Shostak, um, he was actually, he's been for a long time very interested in like, where does DNA come from? And where does, like, how was that coming from presumably inorganic molecules on primordial earth? Like, how does it become these neat four bases that are present? Like the same four bases in all animals and all plants and everything. And his theory is that like for the longest time in primordial earth, there were like lots of bases. There was not, there was like, life was not that discriminating. You could, you could have, you know, I or another, like there are lots of different organic molecules that are similar to these bases. Um, and then it, it, his theory is that, well, over time, like some of them were less, um, you know, advantageous or less stable. And so, the four, like these four got the job done. And, and then the organisms that had these four over time just like took up more space. So I guess that's one way of thinking about evolution, but essentially there's, there's no like strong reason why it wouldn't work with other bases. And in fact, nowadays there's a lot of biotech companies that are expanding the, the DNA alphabet. And if you put more bases in there, you can do more things obviously, but with the same real estate. Um, but- And what do you uh, think of that? Of what? Of, of adding more bases? Artificial bases. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, for certain applications, right? Like, for instance, let's say that you um, uh, let's say that you want to make new kinds of molecules. Like, you want to make a protein. So, a lot of drugs that you use for to treat cancer or allergies or you know um, autoimmune disorders, a lot of those drugs are actual proteins. That's what they are. And so, to treat people, you have to make proteins. And so how do you make proteins? Well, this is how you make proteins. You make the, the DNA that tells you how to make like the ingredients for the protein. And then you put that DNA in a bacterium or some cell. And then the cells start reading the DNA and make proteins. Then you kill the cell, you harvest the protein, and then um, that's your drug. And that's actually how we make like laundry detergents and also anti-cancer drugs. Like a lot of your life is built around this process. You just, a lot of people aren't really aware of it, but Enzymes and other proteins are a big part of, of, of like everyday life. Uh, so um, yeah, so if you wanna make proteins for some industrial purpose, you're limited to the kinds of components that living proteins contain. But if you want to incorporate something else, like let's say you wanna have like um, a specific chemical or something that uh, uh, is not present in typical proteins. Maybe you wanna have like some metal there or you know, like something that gives it a unique property. You don't have any way to do that with the regular DNA RNA protein paradigm that has been in place for billions of years. So in order to innovate on top of that and incorporate new kinds of chemistry into proteins, 
One way to do that has been to, um, to expand the DNA alphabet. So now you can basically make artificial cells that can read that expanded alphabet. And when they see a new base, they will use that information to put a new kind of molecule into the protein. And then those proteins will have additional properties. There are lots of companies doing this. This is like fairly standard. Actually, uh, Scripps, um, Scripps Research Institute is uh, next door to Salk here in La Jolla. And uh, there was a professor there uh, who, who invented um, uh, one of these methods to create like unnatural amino acids as part of proteins. Yeah, but that's a really useful technology. I think in terms of like life, it's it's hard. Right now, I haven't seen any good applications for like actually putting artificial bases into humans um, or other animals. Um, but I don't know, I guess it's limited by our creativity. Like if you can come up with a good way to use it, I'm sure it's good for something. It's just that our body bodies wouldn't know what to make of it quite yet. Also, if like, if you eat DNA, and I was gonna get to that, um, Oh, no, it wasn't on here. It doesn't matter. Um, one benefit of DNA is like it's not toxic for anything. I guess it's not why it's good for information storage. But um, if you eat DNA, you will just like break it down into little pieces. And so if you were to eat artificial DNA, you will still break it down to little pieces and it wouldn't really do any good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so DNA is good for information storage for a lot of different reasons. It's nice, like you have two copies in each uh, spiral. And it's easy to copy. There's like a method for doing it. Um, yeah. But I would argue the same reasons make it a great engineering tool. Like think about plastic. You can make all sorts of things out of it. Think of metals. Like you make all sorts of things out of it. Um, turns out DNA is even better in many ways. And um, the reasons are the following. We understand DNA really well because people like me have been studying it for a long, long time. Um, we can program it to have like any sequence that we want. That's also a function of, of um, the biotech industry. Uh, it's really cheap to make, like it's literally everywhere. Every time you take a bite of something, you're just like eating a lot of DNA. <laughs> um, it's super scalable because if you can make one piece of DNA, you can duplicate it and like you can make it self-replicate and make billions of copies as easily as you make one copy. And um, it doesn't degrade on its own. That's why mammoths <laughs> still have their DNA present um, and you can eat it and it's non-toxic. It tastes a little bit sour because it's a nucleic acid, but it's, it's otherwise, um, you know, it doesn't affect you in any way. Uh, and it's really easy to integrate into biological systems because it's a biomolecule. It's something that is already part of us. So if you want to make like little devices or nanorobots or something, if you make it out of DNA, like it's easy to integrate it into other parts of biology. Cool. Um, oh yeah, this is, this presentation uh, shows you the history of, of DNA origami. So maybe I'm not gonna go into like the entire historical record, but suffice it to say that there was, um, it was started by this guy, um, Ned Seaman. Ned Seaman was a professor at NYU. He passed away last year, um, unfortunately, but uh, he, um, in the eighties, um, he was fascinated by um, crystals and especially how to make crystals out of proteins. Because if you can make, uh, crystals out of proteins, then you can, turns out you can like figure out their structure very easily. Yeah, I show there here at the top. If you can make a crystal uh, out of proteins, then you can get a, you can shoot x-rays at it. You can get a diffraction pattern. The diffraction pattern tells you where every atom is within the protein. And then you can figure out the exact structure of that protein. So this is super useful, but turns out that most proteins don't want to crystallize. Uh, salt loves to crystallize, but proteins don't. Uh, so he was like, well, if we can just like organize, figure out some way to build like a little matrix and then like hold the proteins in place, then um, maybe we can make crystals out of proteins and we can figure out what they look like. So that was the motivation. Uh, and in his office, he had this painting that I'm showing here by MC Escher. And this painting was like, made him think that, okay, wait, if I want to build this like matrix thing, uh, all I need is something that has this structure like these little fish, um, but then it's like many, many copies of it. And, uh, and then he thought to himself, huh, why can't I make those little fish out of DNA? And then they can like hook onto one another and integrate into this like three-dimensional wireframe. And then I can link the protein to that DNA in some way. So he had this like flash of genius that he thought like, oh, I just want to build this like giant matrix out of DNA. <laughs> And this was in the 80s and like nobody knew how to build things out of DNA or even make DNA very well. Uh, and so he published a paper 
that um, that most people didn't care about. This is 1982. It was completely theoretical. There was no data. There was like nothing. It was just an idea. Uh, and it and and he was like, this is the basic idea. Okay, so you have two pieces of DNA, and if we could decide what bases you have in the DNA, then you can make it, you know, so that it's like ATCG and then the opposite here. So like uh, TA, uh, yeah, GC, I guess. <laughs> then they would pair up and zip up and become a double helix is what they do. But he was like, what if we make this part complementary to this part, but then this part is not complementary to this part. Then you would get like a double helix here. And then these parts will just be like floppy and, and not like bound to anything. And then you can make, other pieces of DNA that are complementary to these. And you can like build a larger structure with like junctions. And so that, that's, that was his vision. And it took about 10 years for him to, um, uh, to come up with this like structure that you could then build. So this was like the first little sub module of, of the first you know, matrix. Um, and <laughs> he didn't have any good way. So painstakingly after like 10 years, he was able to like synthesize all the bases that he needed to make this little cube. And, um, and then he ran this uh, electrophoresis gel, which just tells you that maybe there's a cube here, but it wasn't very convincing. But it took him so long to build this and he didn't even have the tools to be able to see what he, what he made essentially. It took much longer to figure that out. It was also super expensive and low yield and it wasn't very practical. But since then we've gotten much better. So now there are biotech companies that build DNA, um, any sequence you want, as long as you want, like it, you, you could just like, type it in on an online ordering form and it shows up two days later, you get a little tube with whatever DNA you want. It's not even expensive. It's ridiculous. Like it's, it's really cool actually. And we have really good microscopes nowadays. So you can actually see these structures that we build out of DNA. So now here's a tetrahedron, which is not quite the same as uh, what he built, but it, it's a variation of the same idea. Um, and then in 2006, there was a professor who came up with this concept called that we now call DNA origami. He actually came up with this. Um, with this, um, uh, uh, with this name, and, and and what he did was he he um, he took a a pre-existing what he called a scaffold DNA. So this is a long single strand of DNA. So it contains like one side of the code, uh, and we take this from a virus or something else. It's just like a pre-existing uh, sequence. And then what we do is we synthesize these what we call staple strands of DNA, and these have a, a sequence that we decide what what it is, and we design the sequence in such a way that it takes different parts of the scaffold DNA and brings them close together. So this staple uh, DNA here, it contains a part that is complementary to this part of the scaffold and a part that is complementary to the other part of the scaffold. So you can take two parts of the scaffold and bring them together. And if we do this, we, there, we have computer programs that do this for us now. We can basically say what shape we want it to be in, and then it will spit out what kind of sequences we need in order to bring the scaffold DNA into that shape. Um, so uh, now we can go from like, okay, we want to make a smiley face. Uh, we'll just break it down into like little helices like this. And then for each one of these little helices, we'll think about, okay, what sequence does the DNA need to be to bring um, the scaffold uh, strand into this shape? And then we um, design those staple strands and we take a bunch of the scaffold and we mix it together. And this is what it looks like. It's an actual microscope picture of, of the DNA origami. Uh, and since then, we've been able, or not we, the, this is the original lab at Caltech. They made a bunch of different shapes in two dimensions. Um, and, um, and, and then uh, one of my collaborators at Harvard, he figured out how to uh, make this into three dimensions. And so now we can like fold the DNA into these three-dimensional space-filling structures. And we basically have a toolkit for building any three-dimensional shape that we want on the molecular scale. And now this is where, to me, it becomes really interesting because now we have the, now we really have the tools to build anything at the molecular scale that we could traditionally build only at the like macroscopic uh, scale. So um, yeah, so we have, yeah, and oh yeah, you can make this in like because of DNA, we could just like make tons of it. This is a powder. <laughs> you can you can dissolve this powder; it turns into these little rods, DNA rods. And if you can like desiccate it and dry it out and it turns into powder again. So it's a really neat technology in that sense too. If you can build something useful, you could just like send it in an envelope to wherever and then they can like redissolve it and it'll take shape again. Uh, this is about how big it is compared to, so some of the largest DNA origami shapes are about the size of, this is a bacterium. So they're still like small, really small compared to cells. Um, uh, but 
But yeah, they're getting larger and larger over time and we can assemble more of them together to make larger structures. But if we wanna make like little tools that go inside of cells, this is really the way to go. Um, so I'll show you three examples of what it, this can be used for. I just think that like coming into this field, I was like, this is ridiculous. We have a way to build molecular structures in any shape or form that we want. Of course, we can use it for like a million different things. And that's that's really where I wanted to be. I was like, let's, let's help bring about like a new revolution in how we build devices. Like instead of just building things from the top down, like etching things away or, or casting things like, or carving, you know, let's have them build themselves from the bottom up. And then if you can design one thing, you can design billions of things. And it's really easy to scale up manufacturing. So here's an example of what you can use it for. So this red thing in there in the middle is a, is a, is a COVID, um, uh, a SARS-19 uh, coronavirus. And one way to, if people get really sick with, uh, with COVID, uh, they basically have like a ton of virus particles. I mean, we've learned this um, pretty early on in the pandemic that like what kills people is really when you have like a viral overload and there's so many of them and they just infect your body everywhere, cause all these troubles and your immune system can't clear them. So the way to treat these patients that have like a really high level of viruses, and this is the same for any viral infection like HIV too, is you, you typically inject them with patients with antibodies, these small blue molecules that bind to the virus. And then hopefully when it binds to the virus, it prevents the virus from like invading your cells and making more of itself. And, it, and those antibodies are also little flags that tell your immune system to come and eat the virus. And that's good, right? But for people who have a lot of viruses in their blood, like there's not enough immune cells to, to eat all the viruses. And so what you end up having is even if you have antibodies on there, those little viruses can still go around and cause a lot of damage. So there's this group in Germany that came up with a way to build like DNA origami shells that will uh, capture virus particles inside. And, and by doing so, they basically uh, prevent the viruses from doing anything bad. So now you don't even need a good antibody. You just need something that makes the virus like fit in there and sit there. And um, uh, yeah, and the shape can be designed in such a way that only virus particles fit there, not like your own cells, for instance. And so they, they made these little cages and then they tried this out on, um, on cells. So this is, uh, this is not coronavirus in this case, this is a different virus, but they basically had a bunch of cells. Each cell is a green blob there and it lights up green if the virus has infected it. So these viruses are invisible uh, to the, to even in this microscope picture, but the cells are visible and the cells turn bright green when they've been infected with the virus. So here they added virus to the sample and the cells light up because they get infected by virus. And then they added the repeated experiment again, but with antibodies present. So this is what you would do to a patient who has been infected and has a really high viral load, and they come to the ICU or something, you give them uh, antibody. Um, and so you can see that there are fewer cells that get infected, but there's still a bunch of them infected. And now the third experiment they did was with the same amount of antibodies, but all of the antibodies were on the inside of these origami shells. And you can see that almost no cells have been infected by the virus. So, uh, what we did was we didn't design a new drug. We didn't like add a new chemical. All we did was we took the antibodies that we already had and we put them on the inside of these, of these origami shells. And now these origami shells, each of them becomes a virus trap. And then they trap the viruses and, and prevent them from infecting cells. And then over time, like your body can clear out this origami. You'll basically just pee it out. Like it's not, it's not harmful in any way. Uh, here's a quantification of the results. All right, uh, use case number two. Uh, so the first one was, uh, you know, in, in biotech or healthcare. This one is to build circuit boards, and the the motivation here is that when we're building circuit boards, especially these microchips that you use for processors for computers, we, we need to make the circuits as small as possible so they're as fast as possible and use as li little energy as possible. So over time, like these circuits have become smaller and smaller, down to the level where they're like basically just a few atoms wide. And at that point, it's almost impossible to manufacture them without errors. Like you have to, the way we still make these circuit boards is we like print them. And so when you print them, you have to do like one at a time and you, you, you're limited by how well you can focus essentially light or electrons onto, a, um, onto this like silicon chip. And um, this is, was an alternative approach. It was developed by uh, one of my former colleagues uh, to, to design microcircuits, or in this case, nanocircuits, using DNA origami. And the way uh, they did it was by building origami in into sort of like a landscape. And then when you add these wires, they will like align with the trenches in this landscape. 
So you can see these, these uh, trenches here. These are basically um, trenches where the wires can land. And then when you add the wires, uh, they will align with these trenches and you can design exactly the pattern of wiring and the pattern of the circuits on this board. And then once you've assembled all these wires, these wires are just carbon nanotubes. So they're like super tiny. They're just a few atoms wide. Um, once you've uh, aligned these wires, you can, you can just remove the DNA. You can basically dissolve the DNA. And what you're left with is the, the circuitry that you've built. Um, yeah, cool. And then the third use case that I wanted to tell you about is, is my own research. And here we're making, uh, we're making um, well, in this case, rotors, but really we're making sensors that can sense molecular movements. We're using that to understand how proteins generate mechanical force. Uh, so here the motivation is that uh, if you look into cells, cells have nuclei, and inside the nuclei you have a bunch of DNA. But the DNA isn't just by itself. So as you saw before, it's like chromosomes that are messy things. And the way the DNA looks like, if you actually zoom in on a cell, is that it's interacting with all these different proteins. And every time a protein interacts with DNA, whether it's like something that reads DNA or copies DNA or represses the DNA or um, in some way changes the DNA, every time that happens, uh, it's a mechanical interaction. So you might see like chemistry textbooks telling you like, oh, this, uh, this process uh, leads to this chemical outcome. Like, DNA can become broken down or built up or and so forth. But a big part that we don't know about yet is what is the mechanics of these processes? Like if there's a, a protein or an enzyme that is reading the DNA or copying the DNA, what are the forces involved? Like how does it move? And without knowing how they move, we don't really understand how these processes work. And that's something that like growing up, I wasn't really aware of how little we knew of this. Like here we see some snapshots of what this looked like that, you know, the pink here is the DNA and then the green stuff and the blue stuff is different proteins. And these are like kind of, you know, snapshot structures of what we think it looks like if you took a snapshot, but it doesn't tell you anything about the movements. So uh, most of the movements actually between proteins and DNA have never been observed, even though it's like a very, very important part of how our bodies work. And so as a physicist, I wanted to like break down this problem into really simple terms. So I was thinking about, okay, you have an enzyme and you have DNA and the, the DNA can move relative to the enzyme in different ways. So it can either rotate or it can bend or it can move in a linear direction. And so like what we're doing in my lab now is we're building tools to study all of these different movements and to track them in real time. And the way we do that is I'll show you an example for rotation, but we're doing this for all these different kinds of movements. So we knew that in, during transcription, transcription is the process by which um, there's an enzyme that reads your DNA and basically figures out what the code is. <laughs> and and that, that's how DNA is read in, inside of your cell like, all the time, uh, everywhere. Um, and um, because DNA is like a spiral, in order to read the code, the enzyme has like moved like a spiral along the DNA. And so if you see it from the point of view of the enzyme, the DNA is actually rotating. So a lot of people thought this was going on, but it's, it's like extremely difficult to see this kind of rotation. And so um, uh, every time, you know, uh, this enzyme like read one more base um, and one more letter, it would move the DNA by, yeah, this third of a nanometer, so a third of a billionth of a meter, which is a very small distance. Um, and it would also wrote, we think, we think, we, nobody has seen this, but we thought it would also, because DNA is a spiral, we think it would rotate it by about 35 degrees. And this movement is like tiny also, you can see like these are, in this representation, each line is like a bond between two atoms. So these are tiny, tiny movements. And um, uh, so I was thinking, okay, it's a small movement, but maybe we can amplify this movement in some ways. So we can see it more easily. So I was thinking, okay, you have DNA and if it's rotating, uh, if you had like a lever arm on top, the lever arm would move much larger in a larger motion than there's just the DNA itself. And so if the lever arm is say 80 nanometers, now then the, the movement from one, uh, from reading one letter would be a uh, 40 nanometer like swiveling of the tip of the lever arm. And so if you can place something that is, uh, uh, that, that emits light, um, in our case, it's a molecule that is fluorescent that emits, uh, emits light. Uh, if you can place a fluorescent molecule at the tip of this lever arm, you should be able to see this, this like swiveling motion if you have a good enough microscope. And um, uh, yeah, so now it's like, how do you make a lever arm <laughs> that you can attach to a DNA? Well, easy, you just use DNA origami. 
So we made DNA engram in rotors. These are essentially just multiple lever arms. Um, turns out you didn't need four lever arms. It was fine with one, but I, I thought propeller seemed like a good, uh, uh, a good thing to start with. And I put a bunch of fluorescent molecules on one of the sides. And um, uh, this is what they look like. So this is, um, this is using an atomic force microscope. This image takes like several minutes to take. So this wouldn't tell you any rotation. But it, you can see, like, if you scan very finely, you can like actually tell what the, the rotors, oh, what the rotors look like, and and this is what a single rotor looks like in very high magnification. But there's no mo motion here. But this is just to see what they look like. But then we could use um, an optical microscope to see the light that comes from the tip of the rotor, and we could use that to see if it's spinning or not. So the way we did this experiment is we took RNA polymerase. This is an enzyme that reads DNA, and we sort of fed it with DNA. So now it's like in the process of, of, of reading this DNA and we think that it's rotating it, but we don't know, nobody has seen it, right? And so what we did was we attached um, a DNA rotor on top of this DNA. It's very easy because DNA binds with DNA. So we can just like have the opposite sequence. So we can assemble this very easily. Um, and now if the enzyme is spinning the DNA, we should be able to see the rotation of the rotor. And uh, so this is what we think it looks like, but this is a 3D rendering. And this is what it actually looks like. So this is these are pixels on a camera with like super high magnification. This is as 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 uh, focused as you can get this light. So this is like as sharp of an image as you can get of a single rotor uh, spinning. And so you can see that the pixels here are like brighter at different times. Like now this one is this one is the brightest, and then this one is the brightest. And what this white line and the crosshair shows you is which where is like the center of the the brightness. Kind of does that make sense? Like the, the light is spread out over several pixels on the camera, camera, but you can tell that like on average the light comes from like one location, and that's what we're tracking over time. Uh, so that looks like it was like spinning in a little circle, and um, uh, and and ultimately this um, this this can be converted into uh, you know how many degrees is it rotating as a function of time, uh, and so. Yeah, the size of this rotation was the same size as the size of the rotor that we made. And so we were like, okay, yeah, it looks like it's actually spinning. And then if you look at how much it rotates as a function of time, here you have like a few seconds of rotation. It looks like it's not even going like a smooth uh, line, but it's actually going in little steps. And so we think that these steps, this is the first time anyone has seen this. And, and we think these steps are actually this enzyme like reading the individual uh, basis of DNA. And so every time it's reading a new base, it's like, rotating the DNA by about 35 degrees. Uh, and so if you look closely, you see that these steps are not all the same size. And actually these lines that I put here are just aligned to this, where we think the steps are. And you can see that the, like the, this line, these lines here are closer together than these lines here, meaning that this step is larger than this step. So we think the rotation that this enzyme is producing is not the same for every letter that it reads, but it's different for different letters. And so, we think that we might actually see, like, we can tell what the enzyme is reading as it is reading the DNA, if that makes sense, which was like mind blowing to us. This is one protein, one molecule reading one piece of DNA, like one letter at a time. And we can like watch it in real time. <laughs> so so I, was, I was very excited when I saw this. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I'm blown um, away. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and now we're using these uh, rotors to basically tell us how different enzymes produce different kinds of movements of DNA, and it will help us understand like the movements that are going on inside of cells at all times. And from one of these experiments, because these rotors are so easy to make in like, you know, lots of them at the same time, we can get like hundreds or even thousands of these trajectories of like rotation um, at the same time, essentially in just a few minutes. And so my students in my lab, they're basically getting these kinds of observations, and then they're left looking at it, and they're like, wow, like, there are no two enzymes that do the same thing. Like, even though the DNA is the same sequence, um, it looks like the enzymes are doing different things. Each one of these lines represents the trajectory, the movement of one enzyme moving on a piece of DNA. And so the thing that struck us was just how different these enzymes are. It seems like our current hypothesis is that the enzymes really just do have, they have personalities, you know, like just as you and I are different, these enzymes, even though we think they might, we, we used to think they're like the same structure and the same chemical 
compound, they work totally different. And okay, so we were talking about identities before. How how does so sorry, you're so you're saying that they have identities, personalities, but that they are all made up of the same things. So where is the differentiation between them? That's a great question. That's exactly the go. kind of question that we're trying to figure out. So Okay, great. There, there are two possible answers. One is that they aren't actually the same chemical composition. There could be small, small changes that, that we're just not aware of. And the second option is- Wait, that, sorry, where, where, where would those be? Well, like, so we think, I mean, like everything on the molecular scale is it's, it's very difficult to control exactly what happens. And so if you're trying to make, um, you know, a bunch of enzymes, the way it works today is like what I said before, basically you put a bunch of DNA inside of cells and then you allow the cells to make these enzymes and then you harvest these enzymes or extract them from the cells. And um, uh, yeah, we, we don't really understand cells. Like we, it's possible that some of these enzymes are actually slightly different in, in very subtle ways. Like they could have like an additional atom somewhere or you know, they kind of a modification. They, they could have oxidized a little bit. Um, there are ways that we can figure this out, obviously. And, and there is some heterogeneity. We actually don't think that the difference in, um, we don't think that the difference in these, all of these different trajectories can be attributed to those chemical changes, but we think there are other changes in addition. Okay, um, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so what we think it is, is that the, these enzymes, they're basically, they're like little, in themselves, they're kind of like origami shapes, like they're a chemical molecule, but then they're like folded into some structure. And that structure gives them their, properties uh, just as much as their chemical composition. And so we think that the shape in which they're folded into can be slightly different between them. And so they the yields a different, I, huh? The, the, a slight shape difference yields a different out, outcome result. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like let's say you have a car, right? And you take one of the components and you bend it a little bit, like it's the same components and it's the same material, but if one of them has a slightly bent, you know, wheel axle or something like, it might run a little wobbly. That's our current. That's our current hypothesis, and that's something that we're trying to figure out, honestly. And so, yeah, one way to figure it out is actually you can like heat it up a little bit, and then you might change the shape of these enzymes and see if that changes the way they work. But there are many ways you can you can figure this out. Anyway, uh, I just want to round this up because I do need to go soon. Um, and okay, so we're building these tools. Um, but the thing that I want to leave you with, and this is kind of like. You're, you're like, if you were interested in my overall vision, the way I see this field is that uh, if you look at the last like 70 years, um, there's 70 years ago that people built the first transistor. And at the time, 99.999999% of the world were like, that's the most useless thing ever. It will never be good for anything. It's a weird chemical experiment in the lab. Uh, and, and today we have, you know, self-driving cars. So <laughs> it took, about 50 years for this technology to go from a curious driven curiosity driven experiment in the lab to becoming an in integral part of our society and that really enhances our, our experience in life and our ability to do things in the world and for dna origami i see the same trajectory like basically it was it was it was in the 80s like 40 years ago that nadrian seman had this vision and he was like you can build things out of dna and then you started being able to build things. And mostly it was like out of curiosity, like who needs a smiley face? Nobody, right? But eventually now we're getting to the point where we can start to build useful tools and maybe even devices and sensors and detection mechanisms and, and components, you know, that can allow us to build larger structures that can actually do things that can actually change the way we do science and ultimately healthcare and energy production, whatever, you know? Um, it's been 40 years and we're just starting to see this upswing. But if I can give you one piece of advice is to keep an eye on the kinds of technologies that are slow to start, but have a huge potential impact once we can control them. All right. Wow. What a way to end. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my lab. <laughs> that's amazing. And, uh, yeah. None of this would be possible without these brilliant students, postdocs and, and trainees. And so, so I'm, I'm very thankful for having all of them. And they are the people who will, who will you know, make this vision come real. Wow.
Thank you so much. That was amazing. I know you have to run. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Thank you so um, much. I'm so I'm beyond appreciative of you talking to me. Cool. I I, I hope uh, some of it was informative, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to you know follow up and answer questions if you have them, or you know if you have ideas, you're always welcome to uh, to reach out. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm beyond grateful. And if and maybe if I if I could request, I don't know if there's anything any one interesting that fellow students working on any cool projects i'm trying to like have everyone i talk to maybe refer me to another person if there's someone that you think would be someone interesting for me to talk to that would be willing to sit down with the curious dumb but but emphasize curious student about yeah, interested no, I, in their work i will definitely yeah yeah let me get back to you on that I, I have some good ideas and um and yeah i i think you're doing a great thing i hope you reach a lot of people with your podcast and i hope I so too podcast like this when i was in college <laughs> i hope so too thank you so much again right. beyond appreciative have a great day thank you so much